everyone's favorite. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Why is that? Is my that was a uh, that was a headphones volume issue? Forgive me. Let's try this again. Everyone's favorite mass reading, right? Ephesians 5. Women, submit to your husbands. Wives, submit to your husbands. We all know it. We've all heard it. We've seen the people squirming at mass. You feeling uncomfortable. We don't like it. People debate, you know, couples debate before. They're like, is our family Catholic enough? Do they understand this? Are they going to get it? You really love to hear a good homily on it, but it is hard to preach on because this is not a popular concept in today's world. There are many takes, many descriptions of this. And so I'm going to be going into today some Ephesians 5, as well as other parts of Scripture that may support or oppose things like mutual submission. Things like wives submitting to husbands, husbands submitting to wives. What does it look like for a husband to love his wife? What does it look like for a wife to submit to her husband? What does it mean that we are the domestic church? How do we live that out? What does that look like within a marriage? What is marriage role in society? How do we reverse the effects of the fall? What is the solution to the fall of man? What happened in the Garden of Eden? We're going to be getting into all of this and so much more in today's episode. And I'm so excited because very rarely do I prepare for an episode this much. But today I've got a whole outline ready for me. I'm ready to get through some things. I got tabs pulled up. I got documents ready. We're going to be getting into this very divisive, very spicy topic that I think is often misunderstood but so, so critically important to many of the challenges and issues that we're facing today. So I'm really excited. It's great to have you here with me today. Thanks for joining me. And without further ado, let's get to it. All right, so welcome back to Seeking Excellence again. This is your host, Nathan Crankfield. Such a blessing to have you today and to get into such an important topic. We're going to be getting into um, really just talking about marriage. That's what it's coming down to today. We're talking about marriage. This isn't about power trip. This isn't about uh, feminism. This isn't about anything other than having a proper context and understanding of what marriage is, what biblical marriage is, and what God's plan for marriage really is as we find it in the scripture and in church tradition. And so I am uh, really looking forward to this and wanted to start with this kind of analogy. So especially for my Catholics out there, but this episode is definitely not just for the Catholics because this is very, a lot of this is going to be just very rooted in scripture. But for my Catholics out there, have you ever been talking, <laughs> and, and for the Protestants, maybe skip ahead a, a couple minutes here. If you are Catholic, have you ever been talking to somebody about the true presence, someone who's not Catholic, specifically a Protestant, about the true presence of Jesus in the Eucharist? Have you ever been talking about it? Have you ever said, you know, the church believes that this is the true presence? Maybe you took somebody to Mass for the first time, and you were explaining to them why they can't receive Holy Communion, why they can't receive Communion at Mass. And they say, why, why not? And all this stuff, you're getting into the true presence why we believe that we actually eat Jesus's flesh and blood, um, you know, body, blood, soul, and divinity at the mass, at the sacrifice of the mass. 
And they're like, well, where is that in scripture? And you say, ha, I'm so glad you asked. And you pull out your Bible, right? And you start rapidly flipping through the pages as you're hearing me do right now. And you get to what? If you're a good Catholic out there, you know what you're turning to. You're turning to John chapter six. And I promise I'm going somewhere with this. We're going to come back to Ephesians, but hear me out. John chapter six, verse 22, Jesus starts on what we call the bread of life discourse. It is in this that Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me because you saw signs, but you do not, but not because you saw signs, excuse me, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Remember, this is right after the loaves and the fishes, the multiplication. He goes on to say, um, my father gives you the true bread from heaven for the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. Who believes in me shall not thirst. And at this point, a lot of Protestants are like, yeah, but he's just talking about, you know, kind of metaphorically, he's talking about believing in him and how that's good for us and all that kind of stuff, right? And then he goes on to say, I am the bread which came down from heaven. Then he says, uh, Jesus goes on to say here, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that a man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. And he goes on to say this more, for my flesh is, is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Now, if you've ever gone through this, you know, I've referenced the Father Mike uh, Seek talk from 2015 on this many, many times, and it's one of my favorite Catholic talks of all time. And the thing that is is powerful, I think, as a Catholic, when you believe this, right, when you believe, when you do this audacious thing and you believe the words that are coming from Jesus's mouth, where he very explicitly says one thing, it's wild to many of us how Protestants can twist that and take it to mean something else. Now, this is essentially my thesis of what I'm going to be trying to get to today with Ephesians 5. I would like to begin by reading Ephesians 5, and I just want to reiterate, and I'm going to go into some of the breakdowns of how it's normally explained and things like that, but I just want to read this, and when you read it, I, I, I beg you as you listen to this to listen to it like it's the first time you're hearing it. Listen to me reading Ephesians 5 as though you are a secular person on the street and I've stopped you to read this to you and I ask you at the end of it, what do you think he means by this? Okay, don't come up to it with any pre you know, you know, all already having your thoughts and your opinions and what you hate about it, what you like about it, even if it upsets you, even if it angers you, even if you think it's uncomfortable or it's disgusting or it's awful, you can think all of those things. But the question that we're going to be addressing today is what did St. Paul, or at least the author of Ephesians, I know it's, you know, uh, highly contested whether St. Paul is the author of Ephesians or not. We're going to be going into what does, what does this mean? What does it mean? And so to give some more context, Ephesians 5 starts out with, you know, one of the headlines in my Bible, and I'm going to be using the Adventure Bible. So you've got the uh, Ascension uh Great Adventure Bible, which is one of my favorites. It's, it's really my personal Bible that I like to use. And then we have a different one at home we kind of use as a family. And then I really love, I have the Gospels. I don't have the letters with me today. Um, it's in the Word on Fire Bible. We love those as well. I really like reading scripture. So 
I love my Bibles. I've got probably four in the office right now, which is a bit of overkill. But anyways, getting back to it, starts off my subcategory that kind of goes four into five is rules for the new life. And so St. Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. That is the beginning of the book. And so I really love this and appreciate somebody pointed this out recently that in this, St. Paul is writing to Christians, right? So he's already writing and explaining this to Christians. He's writing to a Christian church. He's writing to people who believe, who generally are practicing the faith. So these are Christian couples. By the time he gets to wives and husbands, this isn't, he's not talking to the secular world. All right. And I'm, I'm going to bring up later on why that's so important. But he goes for the, through these rules of the new life. The next section is renounce pagan ways, right? And St. Paul says things like, but immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is fitting among saints. Let there be no filthiness or nor silly talk, nor levity, which are not fitting, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So he goes on like this for a while, right? Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise making the most of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish. He goes on to say, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. All right, now it picks up in verse 22. So in verse 22, I'm going to read this now. And I know this might be annoying because I haven't decided what I'm going to do with the To Become Family with Renzo and Monica's episode. But uh, we, I read it on there as well. And so if you, if you want to fast forward it now or fast forward it then, whatever, we discuss it a little bit there, but um, I want to read it again here. I think it's really important because I know there's going to be some people listening to this that don't listen to that and vice versa. Ephesians 5 verse 22 picks up, Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. As the church is subject to Christ, let wives also be subject in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Even so, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no man ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, and I mean a reference to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Okay. So, one thing that I think is really interesting about this. When... We are coming to something like this in today's world. I think that we live in a time where we have to recognize that there are certain things that are in, in the water, right? Certain things that are just in the air that none of us are invincible against. Okay? So we have things that we believe, that we've been taught, that we've been conditioned to believe, that set our framework and the mindset with which we approach different aspects of life. And I believe you're seeing some of this come to theory, come to fruition uh, today and come, you know, out into the open 
in things like gender theory, right? We have now you go from like 2% of boomers being identifying as LGBTQ to now 25% of uh, Gen Zers. You have um, CRT, critical race theory is another version of this, right? When young white kids are taught that they're bad and young black kids are taught that white kids are bad, that whiteness is showing up on time and it's oppression and it's um, meritocracies and it's all these different things. People get conditioned to believe this stuff and then their approach to things, it, it has a heavy, heavy bias later on. And for us, I think, I truly believe that in the way that kids are being brainwashed with CRT now, our generation and the generation before us was equally brainwashed with feminism. And at its core, I think a lot of people criticize feminism. I'm one of these people. I think it's one of the most insidious, one of the most uh, evil philosophies that has ever existed. Is like, is like, is rad- And I don't even want to say radical feminism to a certain extent because there's seeds and even, uh, and I believe this, and I've been taught, you know, and read things and listened to people who have kind of connected that seeds and even the first wave of feminism really led to what we have today. And in feminism, you can see things like no-fault divorce coming about. You see things like same-sex marriage actually coming from it. This idea, one of the fundamental beliefs in feminism, you, you have kind of two aspects of it, right? You have a lot of Catholics who will call themselves feminists that will say, oh, what feminism is, is women just wanting to be having equal rights because they have equal dignity. What feminism really has always been about in a much deeper sense is that women are the same as men. If you could sum it up in one sentence, I think that's it. What is the ideology? What is the philosophy of feminism? Is that women are the same as men. It, it sometimes goes even further than that to say that women are better than men, right? And this is something I think that was popularized really in the 90s into the 2000s. This is why you saw a lot of comedy. We see, you know, the Homer Simpson effect. Uh, Everybody Loves Raymond. Those are always my two biggest examples because those are the shows I watched growing up. But you see so many examples of of dads who are just kind of useless or bad or whatever, um, dumb, and moms that just kind of ran the family, ran the house, ran the world. And I think this idea that men and women are the same has been ingrained in each of us in a deep and, and serious way. And so when we read something like this, our intuition, our instinct, I should say, our instinct is to immediately say, one, either that's just wrong. If you're a Christian, that's kind of hard to say. So your second thing might be, well, that must not be what he meant. My friends, the reason why I started with John chapter six and this example that we often have of Protestants, when you read that and it's like, but Jesus is so clear. He literally says, my, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. I am the flesh. I am the bread of life that has come down from heaven. You must eat my flesh and drink. He says it multiple times and he says it so clearly. I think in the same way, when you come to this paragraph that says, wives be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. As the church is subject to Christ, let wives also be subject to everything to their husbands. That's three sentences where he says the same thing <laughs> three different ways. Wives be subject to your husbands. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. The church is subject to Christ. Let wives also be subject to everything to their husbands. And somehow 
we get through, uh, I want to get into what I, I call like the modern interpretation of this. This is what we tend to hear at most uh, churches, most um, conferences and events and Catholic speakers. They always like to break this down this way. And this, I think, has to be one of my only things. I mean, I love, he's in our litany of saints. I love St. John Paul II. I love Father Mike Schmitz. I don't know if there's anything. I haven't read St. John Paul II's full thoughts on it, like in its total context. But this this idea of mutual submission that we're going to get into um, comes from him. And the way him and Father Mike, the way he's been said to have explained it, because I've only read it again or heard it from third parties. Um, so I can't blame JP2 because I've only heard it secondhand. But even listening to Father Mike explain it, I'm like, I've never disagreed with Father Mike before, I don't think. And it's not to be a prideful thing, but I just think that this is so it's the it's the John six dilemma, right? Where it's just if you come in with this idea that this can't be what it means, we have to figure out something else, then you're gonna figure out a way to interpret it to fit your liking. And this is something that St. Paul strictly warns against, right? In other parts of scripture. I'm reminded of, of 2 Timothy 4, where he says, I'm trying to look it up here, where he warns against false teachers. He says, uh, here we go. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own likings and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. As for you, be steady, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. That's in 2 Timothy 4, verse 3 and 4 and 5, 3 through 5. This is what I think kind of happened is we this there's this thing where like feminism is just in the air. And so I do think that by the time we got to this and and even good people, I think even saints when they're trying to explain this or interpret this to a modern day audience, they're swinging the pendulum in the other direction. A lot of people say that you know in, in the letter to the Ephesians and uh the first letter of St Peter that the, these charges for husbands are so critical because of the culture at the time, right? This is something we often hear. And they use this kind of as an excuse to jump ahead and skip the wives paragraph. And this is the, the most common kind of uh, approach that I've seen in my life. And I almost can predict it, right? If I'm at a marriage conference or, or event, or if I'm at a talk about this, or just a homily on it, almost always I can like guess what's going to happen. Because it almost always breaks down this way. Where you go and you read it, there's usually like, wow, that first paragraph is pretty tough, huh, ladies? But did you read the second paragraph where it talks about how husbands are supposed to love their wives as Christ loved the church? And how did Christ love the church? They point to the crucifix. And they say, that's what he's supposed to do, ladies. And if he's loving you like that, you're going to want to follow him anyway, right? Who doesn't want a man to love him that way? If he's doing that for you, it's going to be easy to submit to him. And to me, that is a we're catering towards feminism way of explaining that. And don't 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 give up on me yet. I'm not saying that it's not quite the charge for men to love their wives as Christ loved the church. That's a huge undertaking. That's an incredible and bold statement to say you should love your wives this way. But I'm pushing back against the way that that's kind of presented because that's not the way that the author of Ephesians presented it. And so how do we jump down and kind of skip it and then give these conditions and then make it seem easy? I don't think that that makes a ton of sense. 
The other thing that's often used in this is, and I think this is a really interesting take, is you'll have people who will say, um, sorry, let me look up a word here. You'll have people who will say, yes, this is another, this is another approach, another uh, version of that. Yes, women, you're supposed to submit to your husband. What does submission mean, though? Let's break down the word. I love when we do this to fit our liking because we don't do that with words generally, right? We're not going around saying, well, let's break down the parts of the word. We know that in language, we operate based on definitions, right? We think of other examples where the word is used to see if it's the right word or not. So a lot of times, instead of saying, you know, my version here in the, the RSV says, wives be subject to your husband. So this doesn't even work <laughs> in all the translations, right? It doesn't even work in the RSV, but we'll go... Um, with whatever version it is. I don't know if it's the New American Bible or whatever that says, wives be submissive to your husbands. And then they'll say, oh, well, what does what does submission mean? And they'll say, well, the word sub means under and mission is mission. And so you're submission. So wait, ladies, you're just under the mission of your husband. And what is your husband's mission? Well, let's jump down to paragraph number two. His mission is to love you. So you're just under the mission of him loving you. So in, in this like puffed up interpretation of it for whatever reason, it's like, women, you're under the mission of being loved. Isn't that nice? I know it sounded bad at first, but when you break it down, doesn't it sound nice? You're just under the mission of being loved. It's just, it's, it's wonderful. It's great. And one of the things I'm trying to bring us back to here, ladies and gentlemen, is that both paragraphs are hard. And they're hard in different ways. And they're important in different ways. But we got to stop negating either one of them. Going back to what I was saying earlier, people say that Peter and Paul, or the letter of Ephesians, are writing to a crowd when they say, be gentle with your wives, love your wives. When women were treated like property, women didn't have rights. Women were um, looked at as objects a lot of the times, right? They didn't, um, it was kind of like a speak when spoken to, like do what you're told, that kind of thing. So they, they kind of are emphasizing a little bit more about how beautiful it is and, and this charge to actually love your wives, to care for them, to be gentle with them, to be kind with them, these kinds of things. I think nowadays we're in the opposite time. We're not in a time where women are overly submissive and men are overly tyrannical. And if you believe that we are, then... One, you're definitely a progressive, right? You're, you're voting blue because only people who are Democrats and progressives believe these lies anymore that we're still living in a time where women are oppressed. For what it's worth, ladies out there, if you're offended by that, I as a black man think the same thing about black people. That you're a Democrat progressive if you think that black people are still living in an age where we are seriously oppressed. Why? Because you can look at statistics. One, you can just look at the laws and the freedom, but then you can look at stats on, I mean, women have in, a, even less of an argument than black people do because women are doing substantially better than men in most measurable categories these days. But uh, black people are still doing worse, but they have the freedom. So really it's a choice thing, I think, for a lot of the disparities between blacks and whites. But women are, are generally doing better. They, uh, men commit higher rates of suicide. More men are substantially, substantially more men are in prison. You have um, uh, the the uh, higher education. That's where I was going. Sorry, I had a brain fart there. You have higher education where women are getting much higher degrees and they're earning more and more money and they're penetrating the workforce and all these different things that largely aren't making them any more happy. 
but they do have access to all of these different things similar to black people have affirmative action or are, are you know tokens of diversity for a lot of companies and things like that which makes the path to success even easier so we're not in this time period where we have these overly submissive women and it's not like the church is raising them either most women in the church are feminists you look at the stats even on abortion in the church but let alone everything else the 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 type of women that are in the church are not these I know we like to paint it this way, but it's not this like submissive non-feminist woman. That is not the general picture here. So understand, remember that, that, that St. Paul here is writing to the church. So it's already talking about the, the title is the Christian household. Okay. And so we have to keep in mind where we're at in time and history. And this is what I wish I could remind. If I could talk to father Mike about it, that would be my question for him is you're so afraid of, this this toxic masculinity, this idea that there's all these that those of us, those Catholic men, us Catholic men who are showing up for mass on Sundays, praying with our families, etc., that the problem within our marriages is that we're tyrannical and authoritarian. I don't know what families you're meeting or talking to, because most of the Catholic families I know are uh, equally sharing the workload of the home. Many of them, they both work. Like they kind of just splitting. They're just two parents in kind of the same, but in two different bodies. I think that's the average Catholic family, right? Sending their kids to Catholic schools, going to mass on Sundays. I have to remember that I live in this like bubble, right? At Our Lady of Lords here in Denver and stuff where you have exceptional people and you have this lived out, I think more beautifully than in most places. But where I grew up and where I was from in Harrisburg, PA, the church is there. If you polled the regular Catholic families, none of them would believe or be able to explain even what makes a Catholic marriage different than a regular, you know, a secular marriage, what God's plan is for marriage, the difference of the role between husband and wife, man and woman, because you can't say things like that anymore. You're not allowed to say that men and women are different. That's problematic. That's offensive. So you're not allowed to say that they're different because what do you mean that they're different? Because if you start to explain that they're different, then that means one has to be worse than the other at certain things, right? One has to be proper for certain things. Certain things have to be natural to one that are unnatural to the other. And we can't talk about the, I, I've talked about these in multiple different episodes, right? From my dating episode to the stay at home dads episode. And all the time, it's like, do we need these ideals? Why do we have to talk about this? This is offensive. This is rude. Women can do anything men can do. Men can do anything women can do. And where did that lead us to? We have men now, quote unquote, who can get pregnant and give birth. You have men who are taking pills to create some type of disgusting chemical in their body that allows them to chest feed newborn babies, biological men who are chest feeding, you know, hairy chest and, and, and breastfeeding babies. This is what happens. This is, this is the seed of feminism. Again, men and women are the same. There's no differences. That's what feminism is. If we're going to reject that, if we, you can't as a Catholic say men and women are, are different and then read this chat, this portion of scripture and then turn around and say, but what he really means is that they're just supposed to be mutually submissive to one another in the exact same way. And you can give me, you know, some word salad and some, you know, mental gymnastics about how, no, it is different because the man's supposed to love the wife and the woman is under the mission of that, but they both mutually submit to one another. What? What? How do you read this? How do you read those three sentences I just read you? Wives, be subject to your husbands. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. It doesn't make any sense. 
It doesn't make any sense. Instead, like I said earlier, what if we just took the word submission and defined it? What does that mean? Noun, according to Oxford, the action or fact of accepting or yielding to a superior force or to the will or authority of another person. Now, I had a conversation with uh, Dr. Andrew Swafford about this a couple of days ago. And one thing he pointed out was we have a hard time in today's world imagining authority without being authoritarian. Non-authoritarian authority. And this is where I'm talking about this like fear of toxic masculinity comes up. And this is where I think it's so sad. And you start to see it even when I watched the Father Mike interpretation of all of this. It seemed like he had this fear that like masculinity by default is is toxic and and domineering. And so if we don't overemphasize how much we shouldn't do that, then we can't even we shouldn't even broach this topic, right? Because we have to really stress this doesn't mean that the woman was a slave or a servant. Nobody said that. Right? Nothing in here explains that women should be slaves or servants. And there's almost, I mean, what 0.2% of marriages exist in a place where women are slaves or, or servants in a sense, right? Where they have to ask for every, everything. Can I go to the bathroom and things like that? Those are abusive homes. Again, St. Paul's talking to the church. So the people who are listening to this, I don't think I have a lot of people, you know, committing domestic violence at home. I don't think there's a lot of people who have, there's some who, you know, might be domestically violent and then show up to mass on Sunday. But what percentage? It's got to be extremely low. And it's possible they're out there. I've heard of some stories. But I mean, what percentage of us, guys? Why are we catering the explanation of this scripture to them? To say, oh, well, you know, this is only true some of the time. And so I want to get into that a little bit. But first, I want to share some stats. Um, I did a survey. I did a poll on this on Instagram. I got to share these stats with you because I think it's pretty, uh, I think it's pretty. All right. So these polls on Instagram. So I asked the question, is the husband the head of the wife? I got 87% of people said yes. 13% of people said no. Now, what's really, really mind blowing here is of the people who said no, all but, man, let's see. (laughs) One of them was a man. (laughs) It was all women, many of whom are married, um, many of whom are not. But many of them, I, I don't know all their stories, I don't even know all of them, but a decent bit of them are not, either not practicing Catholics, uh, separated from their spouse or are just secular. This is not, not even Christian. So of course, if you're not Christian, you're not going to believe that, right? It's in today's world. Why would that, why would you ever embrace that if you're not Christian? But just, just, just to remind you, this is Nathan disagreeing with you. The husband is the head of the wife. That is just straight up Ephesians. <laughs> right? So, all good for you to disagree with St. Paul. Next question I ask, in a Christian marriage, who gets the final say? And this is something we're going to get into much, much later. Um, 60% said the husband. 38% said it should always be mutual. 2% said the wife, which I think is super fun. Um, the third one is, does the Bible teach mutual submission between spouses, 
Wives should submit to husbands. Husbands should submit to wives. Somehow 2% said husbands should submit to wives. To no one's surprise, those were all women. Um, wives should submit to husbands. Luckily, got 61%. And then 38% said mutual submission between spouses. Of mutual submission between spouses, it seems like the vast majority were still women, but not totally. All right. So <laughs> I think this is so funny. All right. So I know now at this point, you're probably thinking like, yeah, Nathan, um, but this is one part, you know, like maybe this is Ephesians 5. Like maybe we're just kind of getting this wrong. You know what I mean? Like, why can't you just, um, why can't you just agree that this is mutual submission? Um, let me, before I jump into anything else, actually, the thing, this is some of the, this is one of the things that got me recently. And I, this again is kind of double dipping from the uh, Ortega's episode. So I'm sorry. But Emily recently reminded me, like, you see, you know how there's headings here? If you're watching on YouTube, you can see, right, there's headings on the scripture. You got your little paragraph headings. They didn't write those in. Okay. So the thing that I struggle with, with including, and I, I, I luckily, I wanted to write a really long article on this. And I found an article today that actually was the article I was going to write. I was like, I don't even need to write it because Crisis Magazine, shout out to Josh Cush, already did this. And he talks about the issues with this, this concept that was popularized by St. John Paul II of mutual submission. And he gets into some semantic and lexical considerations. But one of the things that I always thought was so interesting, he kind of references this a little bit, is that for for the entire chapter of Ephesians 5, up until he says the word wives, St. Paul is giving general instruction. For whatever reason, under the Christian household, in certain, in certain um, translations or prints of the Bible, chapter 21 is included in that. But he doesn't say anything about that being for husbands and wives. He's kind of generally speaking to everyone throughout this entire time. As, as I said earlier, he's talking about let no one deceive you with empty words. He's not saying don't let you, your spouse deceive you with empty words. He's saying let no one deceive you with empty words, right? He's speaking in general. He's speaking generally to all, the entire crowd, to the entire church, the entire community. And it's not until he says wives be subject to your husbands that he specifically addresses husbands or wives, where he actually talks about spouses. This is one of the things that like, this is so perplexing to me. I don't know why this is complicated, but it's just like if you go back and read it, it's like he says, be subject to one another, reverence for Christ. Nowhere in the entire Bible will you find something that says, husbands, be subject to your wives. It says, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Christ is not subject to the church. So why does he keep using this? Why does St. Paul continue to use this analogy of the, uh, the husband representing Christ and the wife representing the church? Why does he reverse it? Love your wife as you love yourself. No man ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it because we are members of his body. Or as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. When, when do you see this? Even it goes on to say, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Why does he use two different words there? I just, I just, I don't understand how we like, this is where I'm talking about. It has to be some type of mental gymnastics because the only place that you get this idea of be subject to one another, be mutually submissive is in verse 21. But why is that included in this, this, you know, this conversation about what he's saying to husbands and wives? 
So you say, okay, Nathan, but you're crazy, whatever. Like you got to chill out. Um, that's it's just Ephesians five. You know, we say the mutually submissive thing. Okay. Let's go back to one Corinthians 11 verse three. What does St. Paul say here? But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is her husband and the head of Christ is God. The head of woman is her husband. Hmm. And then you had those people, 10%, whatever it said, husband is not the head of the wife. That's fine. You're just disagreeing with St. Paul and the author. It said the author of Ephesians is not St. Paul. You're disagreeing with several, you know, writers who made it into the Bible. You're, you're disagreeing. It's not, and this isn't like, they're not opining here in scripture, right? This is the inerrant word of God. Okay. So, so yeah. Oh, okay. So going down further here, it says, um, for, for a man ought not to cover his head. He's talking about covering your head while you pray, since he is the image and glory of God. Yes. So let's, let's read that again. So verse seven, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a woman ought to have a veil on her head because of the angels, etc. And then it goes on to say, admittedly, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. So understand that. I mean... That's I think that's beautiful there at the end, right? Understanding the interdependence of one another. We're not independent of each other. We need each other, but in different ways, and we play different roles. Now I want to jump ahead again um, to St. Peter. What does St. Peter say about this? So St. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3, he starts this. Again, I think this is very interesting. This is a, this is a great example again that St. Peter is talking about the way we ought to live, the living stone and a chosen people. These are the, the titles of uh, chapter two, the kind of section titles. The next one, live as servants of God. And he talks about you. He talks about how you should maintain good conduct among the Gentiles, how we should be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Um, he says, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to the kind and gentle, but also to the overbearing. And he gives this example of Christ's, Christ's suffering. Let me read that again, because this is this is the other thing that often will come up. And this is something that really can can drive me crazy. I'm trying to stay in line with my uh, my uh, my outline that I have. But the other thing you often hear in this is like this these if statements, okay? And this really goes back to what I said is is the most common description of these words, right? The most common exegesis and explanation of this that says, and I just heard this, this happened not too recently at a conference. And the woman said, man, men in this room, if you love us like this, pointing to the crucifix, then we will follow you anywhere. And a lot of times you'll hear, yes, and if the man is holy, if the man is living this faithful life, if the man is good, they describe St. Joseph and say, Ladies, if your husband is like this, then you should follow him. I won't say be submissive. I won't say submit. I won't say yield. But you should follow him, even though nothing in here says anything about following. It could be another term for it, but I know it's still like we're we're you know getting away from the terms here. And then to listen to people say you, you hear this in the poll. I mean, those are good Catholic people that said 
wives and husbands should be equally submissive. That's what the Bible says. Not not what what does the church teach or what do we think to like so you can have like some confusion, but what does the Bible say? Show me where the Bible says husbands submit to your wives. I would just love to see it. I, I would just be super curious. I'm going to get to again. If you're still holding on, I know this is uncomfortable. I know this is not an enjoyable episode. I really appreciate you sticking with me. And I'm about to, you know, bring it here with, with St. Peter. But what I'm going to get to why all of this really matters and what's at the heart of this issue, okay? Because this does have serious importance. I think it really does matter. And so I'm going to explain the implications of this and why I think this is really impacting the church in a negative way that we're misrepresenting marriage and we're misinterpreting the scriptures. I think that's, that should be inherently a bad thing to do, right? We should just kind of intuitively know that. But I go back here to First Peter 2, where he's talking to servants. Some people say that he's talking to slaves. Some interpretations would have slaves. Um, translations would have slaves here. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. And this is a, what I think is really interesting. Not only to the kind and gentle, but also to the overbearing. Now, what's interesting about that, I've heard it described many times as these kind of tiers of you have the really, really holy man who you should submit to ladies. And then you have the kind of lukewarm, apathetic man, and you don't really have to submit to him, right? You know better than him. And this whole submissive thing, that kind of goes out the window when he's not perfect. Just like how if we have, you know, a dictator pope or, you know, a, a bad pope, you don't have to listen to him. Same thing goes if you're in a, an abusive relationship or the guy's just not faithful uh, to the faith or to you or whatever it is, you don't have to be submissive. These are the things we get to this instruction of wives. This is how you should behave in a marriage. And all we get, we, it's like, we're trying to find off ramps, right? We get into this and we're like, this, these are the number of reasons why you wouldn't have to do this. It's like, where else in scripture do we get commands and say, well, what are all the reasons we don't have to do this? This is like when somebody says, oh, we have to be chased. We can't have sex before marriage. It was like, well, how much can we do? How far can we go pushing back against this? It's the exact same mindset. It's the exact same mentality that comes in and says, this very clearly says X, Y, and Z. But how often can we not do that? You know, I don't think it makes any sense. And so we're going to go forward here. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. Likewise, you wives, be submissive to your husbands so that some, though they do not obey the word, may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. When they see your reverent and chaste behavior, let not yours be the outward adorning with braiding of hair, decoration of gold, or wearing of robes, but let it be hidden, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable jewel of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So once the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves and were submissive to their husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord. And you are now her children if you do right and let nothing terrify you. Likewise, you husbands, live considerately with your wives, bestowing honor on the woman as the weaker sex, since you are joint heirs of the grace of life in order that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, the next section he talks about is suffering for doing right. So riddle me this, Batman. This idea that you only have to be submissive to your husband if there's two there's two problems with this if statement. One is it it gives you extreme subjectivity. 
So you as women get to just discern whether or not your husband's actually worthy of being submitted to, whether or not he's worried of, uh, he's worthy of, of actually having the authority that God has given him through his role as the priest of the home. That's up to you because nobody's saying like, oh, this is the default. And then if you have these extreme circumstances, then it doesn't necessarily apply. We get that. The same thing goes with separation and divorce, right? But we don't go into divorce and marriage and, and, we, and we go into the church's teaching where it says, hey, uh, you know, being divorced is really bad. Like Jesus himself was like, hey, you know, Moses used to let you guys get divorced, but in the beginning it was not so. We're going to kind of bring that back, this idea that you can't divorce each other. We don't get in there and say, but except if, no, that's not the way we should teach marriage and divorce. That Yeah, let, let's lead with all the reasons why you could get divorced. Here's how to get an annulment should you need one. That's a bad way to do it. Let's live by the rule and acknowledge the exceptions when it comes to it. Okay? We don't have to act like we're all in these abusive relationships where none of this applies. Even this, St. Peter's saying, even if your husband does not follow the word. Says husbands, even though that some of them do not obey the word, may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. So this, you see here before this, it says, servants be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to the kind and gentle, but also to the overbearing. So he's talking there about servants and, and being, and he's saying the people who I'm telling, if I'm encouraging you to submit to someone and be submissive, it doesn't just mean to the, the most righteous among them. This applies to all of you. The other thing that drives me crazy in this is that, ladies, you get to discern this before you get married. We don't live in an era of arranged marriages like they often did back then. And St. Peter is still saying this. We actually live in a time now of you get to choose. You get to date them for a year. You get to be engaged for another year. And when you make that vow on your wedding day, just like I am making a vow to my wife on the wedding day, just like a man is making a vow to his wife on the wedding day, I will strive to love you as Christ loved the church. The wife's side of that, and there's no if, right? There's no if for the man either. We don't get that. And, and I think that that's where so much of this breaks down. If you think about where marriages actually start to fall apart, if you are married, you know this. When you're having difficulty and frustration and friction in your marriage, when does it come? When either of you start to think, I only have to follow my part, going back to St. Paul's command to love and respect, when the husband starts to think, I only have to love my wife if she's acting worthy of my love, equally as bad is when the wife starts to say, I only have to respect my husband if I deem him worthy of my respect. Guys, this is, this is the breakdown. This is the problem with this, is that we are approaching marriage totally wrong. And we keep telling these young women, if your husband loves you, if he loves you this way. If he's righteous and prayerful and you can trust him and he's earned your trust, ladies, then you follow him, whatever that means. We don't know what that means because you still see all the things about, does the man get the final say? What does it mean to actually lead? Who knows? We'll just kind of keep that abstract. But if he's loving you in this perfect way, this is the thing about the crucifixion. When you point to Christ on the crucifix, that's perfect love. I hate to break it to you, ladies, none of us are capable of perfect love. And so if your condition for following your commands in marriage is, oh, as long as this guy's perfect, then I'll submit. That's not how it works. You're never going to do it. You will always find reason not to. 
Because you'll always find that he's still impatient. He's still selfish. He's still prideful. He's still afraid. Why? Because we have flaws. Because we're not perfect until heaven. So when you read all of this, I go back to 1 Corinthians. I go back here to 1 Peter 3, uh, back to Ephesians 5. How do we read this? Oh, oh, I wasn't done. I wasn't done. Forgive me. Again, letter of St. Paul to Titus. Titus 2, verse 5. St. Paul says, I'm going to start at uh, a little bit earlier than that. Uh, verse 3. Oh, no, no, no. Let's start from the beginning. Cha- uh, verse 1 of chapter 2, the book of Titus, the letter of Ti- uh, St. Paul to Titus. But as for you, teach what befits sound doctrine. Bid the older man be temperate, serious, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Bid the older women likewise to be reverent in behavior, not to be slanderers or slaves to drink. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be sensible, chaste, domestic, kind, and submissive to their husbands, that the word of God may not be discredited. Likewise, urge the younger men to control themselves. Show yourself in all respects a model of good deeds, and in your teaching show integrity, gravity, and sound speech that cannot be censored, so that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say of us. So you read this multiple places, right? I just read you four parts of scripture that say something about the husband being the head. Wives should, there's three parts that explicitly say wives be submissive to your husbands that never ever mention husbands be submissive to your wives. Doesn't say to be a tyranny. No. What does it say for the men? Doesn't say, yo, be a, you're the boss now. You're the big dog. Flex on your wife all the time. No, it says love your wife. Be gentle to your wife. Be considerate to your wife. All of these things, right? Because you are Christ. She is the church. Both are the body of Christ. The two are one. The two become one mystically. And as Christ loved the church, so you ought to love your wife. How did Christ love the church? He came. He served. He sacrificed. And ultimately, he gave up his life for the church. And that's what we as men are called to do. And that's a difficult task. And it's a beautiful task. It's a beautiful vocation. It's a beautiful calling. But what does that not mean? It doesn't mean that we just get to disregard the part that women have to play. If men represent Christ and women represent the church, that in and of itself, and this is something I feel like Josh Kush did a real good job in his article expressing. He kind of gives three main issues with this idea of mutual submission. The first is the semantics that I talked about. Then he talks about the Christ church analogy. And so he says a little bit here, he says, um, While the husband is told to love his wife as Christ loved the church, a truly imposing command, the verses directed toward the wife clearly place her in a subordinate position with regard to her husband, who is depicted as a kind of vicar of Christ himself. This submission is comprehensive and would seem to rule out the kind of alternating submission advocated by some. For if the wife submits to the husband in all things, as we read in Ephesians 5, then where precisely is the husband supposed to submit to the wife? This is what I'm talking about. Is, is is this idea that Christ and the church are on equal playing fields is ridiculous. There's multiple places where we hear about this, where we hear about the fact that we represent Christ and the church. In the, in the first chapter of the letter of St. Paul to the Colossians, in verse 18, he talks about the supremacy of Christ. He says, He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
And this was one of my challenges with what Father Mike said. Father Mike was like, well, Jesus, how did he lead? He led by suffer, by sacrificing, right? Servant leadership. Uh, one of my favorite verses in Scripture is Mark 10, 45, where Jesus says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's 100% true. But Jesus also gives us commands. Jesus also leads and directs us and tells people what to do in Scripture. You know, you think about right around that same part in Mark 10 is Jesus flipping tables and pushing people out of the market when they're acting totally contrary to God. So this idea that Jesus was just constantly nice and soft and flowery and uh, never gave commands and never led as a leader does isn't real. To be the head of something, right? We have we have head of sales at our company. We have head of people. We, these people are managers, they're leaders, they're directors of their roles. This is a new modern day way of saying director of, of such and such or vice president of whatever. Now we say head of marketing. What does that mean to be the head? Quite physically on the body, it is the one that determines the direction of the body. It determines your moves. It is the leader. It bears responsibility and with responsibility always comes authority. Again, we go in the church. What do we often say? The father is the priest of the home. The husband is the priest of the home, the domestic church, husband and wife. We talk about this beautiful mystery and this beauty of how husband and wife represent Christ in the church. This idea of God pursuing his bride, which is us, and bringing us into his fold and uniting with us and becoming one with us. And that is what heaven is, right? Being one with God forever. Then we talk about marriage being the domestic church. Or the domestic parish. Two, th- you know, two, two things to this. If that's true that we're the domestic parish, and you're saying that husbands are the priest, one, then we should imitate the actual parish, and two, we have to recognize that at our actual parish, am I on the same level as my pastor? If I say, if my pastor tells me to bow as I'm going up to, it's little things, little things. If my pastor go tells me to bow as I'm going up to lector. And I go up and do a backflip instead. Is that good? Can I say, oh, yeah, you're the head. Sure, you represent Christ here and we're the body. You know, sure, you re- you're the head and we're the body. You represent Christ. We- we're the church. But I-, I read this verse about being mutually submissive. Be subordinate to one another. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, Father, I get it. You have this role and you think you have this title and this authority. but I don't have to submit to you. I don't have to do as you tell me to do. Right? If the same thing goes with certain teachings of the Pope, and we can say, and you can use this example, the same thing goes with the the Pope from earlier, as I mentioned with the whole, if you have an abusive husband or these like extreme examples that are always given that say, well, what about this? What about that? And it's like, yes, just like if we have an abusive Pope or a heretical Pope, we don't have to follow him. Same thing goes for your priest, or your pastor, or your bishop. But you should err on the side of great caution with that and, and default to submission and to following, not to leading and being obstinate, not to being difficult, not to choosing and preferring your own way over the way of the leader. The church is a hierarchy. Part of what we lost in the Protestant Reformation is this idea of authority and what authority means. And what I'm starting to realize, what I've been learning through this entire process of working through this, is that we've lost authority not just in the church, but all the way down. 
And you've heard me talk about this before, probably, where I say that we constantly complain nowadays that there's any levels to anything because we have this obsession with equality and we want all of us to always be equal. Everybody's on equal playing field all of the time. And if they're not, then we need to get them there. And we even need equal outcomes because equal playing fields to start is not enough. And so we have this obsession with equality, with equity. Why is there such a push for female deacons, for female priests in the church? Because we have this obsession with equality. We refuse to recognize and acknowledge the fact that men and women are different. And so with this obsession with equality, we start to be more and more Protestant. And we can read scripture and say, well, I'm going to pick and choose what I like out of this. I'm going to make my decision and come to my conclusions. And then I'll start to, you know, find things to fit that. And I'll just kind of ignore disregard or say it's kind of outdated or old when I come across something that doesn't agree with me. Right? Because so many times, what do we hear? We, we point the theology of the body and St. John Paul II's idea of mutual submission. I just want to read a couple other saints over the years who have had some words and some thoughts on this subject. So St. Clement of Alexandria says in, in, in the year 200, the ruling power is therefore the head. And if the Lord is head of the man and the man is head of the woman, the man being the image and glory of God is Lord of the woman. Then he goes on to talk about Ephesians a little bit further. Um, we have another one here. St. John Chrysostom in year 404 says, Wives, be subject to your husbands. He writes to wives. That is, be subject for God's sake, because this adorns you, Paul says, not them. For I mean not that subjection which is due to a master, nor yet that alone which is of nature, but of that offered for God's sake. That's beautiful. But he, by no means, how do you interpret that to say, oh, he's only meaning if you uh, have this perfect husband who loves you perfectly. That's not what that means. That means St. John Chrysostom is saying that through your submission to your husband, you're being adorned and sanctified. St. John Chrysostom, again, going on Colossians, he says, Observe again that Paul has exhorted husbands and wives to reciprocity. To love, therefore, is the husband's part. To yield pertains to the other side. If then each one contributes his own part, all stand firm. From being loved, the wife too becomes loving. And from her being submissive, the husband learns to yield. And so you see this reciprocal nature of it. But I think what's important there is you hear this cycle that I've talked about a little bit in um, the, the great book, Love and Respect. I meant to bring it up here uh, to show you. But if you've never read it, it's a great book. But in the end there of Ephesians 5, you know, St. Paul says this. He says, um, and we've mentioned it already, but husbands love your wives, wife respect your wives respect your husband. In the book, Love and Respect, they really get into this idea that man's primary driver or need or desire is to be respected. A woman's primary need or driver or desire is to be loved. And he says there's this cycle, right? And I think this is so, so true. That when a man is loving, it's easier for the woman to respect him. When the woman is respectful, it's easier for the man to love him. I think we all acknowledge that that's real, but I'm tired of hearing in these breakdowns of Ephesians 5 that just, men, well, you just need to love your wives and then she'll respect you. That's not how it begins. And if you're in marriage prep or you're a newly married couple, you both start with your task immediately. And there's going to be times where the other person is not really deserving of your love, where the wife's not deserving of your love, and there's times where your husband's not deserving of your respect. And what the saints are telling us here is that when, when we do it, even in the midst of that, it's even more sanctifying. 
It's even more grace-filled. It makes God even all the more happy when we're able to do it then. Because why? Because it's harder then. In the book, they talk about whichever one of you is more mature, when you get out of this cycle, that person should be the one to fix it and to start you know, doing it again. And we can't just always put that responsibility on the man. Yes, men are the leaders. Yes, as men, if I'm just talking to men, yes, you should take responsibility and always strive to be the first one to do that. But to tell women, oh, you should just sit back and wait for him to be loving before you're respectful and encouraging and submissive, that's incorrect. St. Augustine in year 419 said, nor can it be doubted that it is more consonant with the order of nature that men should bear rule over women than women over men. It is with this principle in view that the apostle says, the head of the woman is the man. And wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. So also the Apostle Peter writes, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. That's, Mar- that's Augustine on marriage and concupiscence back, back in the day. What does St. Thomas Aquinas say about it? He says, for though the wife is, excuse me, for though the wife be her husband's equal in the marriage act, yet in matters of housekeeping, the head of the woman is the man, as the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians eleven three. That's the treaties of theological virtues from the Summa Theologica. All right, this, this will be my last quote from uh, the doctors of the church, or church fathers. For the, re- the higher reason, which is assigned to contemplation, is compared to the lower reason, which is assigned to action. And the husband is compared to the, his wife, who should be ruled by her husband, as Augustine says. So that's St. Thomas Aquinas quoting St. Augustine, saying the husband should be the ruler of the wife. Now, all of these guys are using sharper language. And then you have a modern-day saint, an amazing man, and St. John Paul II, who interprets, it, interprets these writings to be mutually submissive and, and takes out all of this tradition of the church. Even going back even further, I, I looked up on magisterian.com, what does the church say about uh, sub- submission? In the, um, excuse me, in the ca- Catechism of the Council of Trent, which dates back to the year 1566, which was a response to the Protestant Reformation, this is what it says. Um, it says the Catechism of the Council of Trent teaches that wives should be subject to their husbands, but this subjection should not be understood as servitude or slavery. Rather, it is a call for wives to love and esteem their husbands, yielding to them in all things that are not inconsistent with Christian piety. The wife's role also includes training their children in virtue and paying attention to domestic concerns. The wife should love to remain at home unless necessary to go out and should not leave home without her husband's consent. That is in the Catechism of the Council of Trent, my dude. The Catechism of the Council. Then, now, does that sound, wh- where in that, somebody break down for me, DM me, where in that does it seem like this, this feminist kind of modern day interpretation of this makes any sense? I mean, you can, you can disagree with what I'm saying. I'm just reading to you quotes from these people. And these were, these were conclusions that I was coming to in reading this. Just as somebody who I, when I was in college, guys, I love the letters. I love the gospels. I love the letters. So I read these all the time. And so I started getting this idea of mutual submission and all these different things. I'm like, what, where is that coming from? Because I know Catholics get accused a lot of times of making stuff up that's not actually written in scripture, but this is one of the times that I think if, if, you know, fundamental Protestants said that, accused us of that, I'd be like, yo, you're kind of right. Because we don't like, that's not what the book says. It's just not what it says. So if marriage is a solution to the fall, 
We have to actually do what scripture says. Going back to this cycle, this is one of my last things. This cycle of love and respect, the good cycle, right? Avoids us from this toxic cycle. What's the toxic cycle? Well, what happened in the fall of man with Adam and Eve? In the fall of man, you had Adam being extremely passive, and you had Eve usurping her role and losing trust in her husband. Losing trust in God, who had ultimate authority, but also trust in her husband, who probably reiterated what God had said. And he was passive and sitting there on the sidelines. And so you have this cycle, the opposite of love and respect, is this passivity, right? Love requires action. It requires uh, initiative. And so when you get this passivity and this apathetic, um, you know, this apathy that we see in a lot of modern day husbands and men, that in turn develops, the woman says, I can't trust you because I don't feel loved by you because I don't feel like you have my best interest in mind. I can't trust you. And thereon goes the cycle. And I don't respect you. Thereon goes the cycle of lacking respect and lacking love. These are the problems at the fall and they are the problems today. Marriage is our solution to the fall. But we have to stop removing authority from our lives and making things equal that are not equal. Men and women are equal in dignity, but they are not equal in authority. Just like a bishop and a priest are not equal in authority, just like a priest and a deacon are not equal in authority, just like a, a priest and his parishioners are not equal in authority, just like a, a um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? An abbot and a monk are not equal in authority. There's plenty of, of, of options. A mother superior at, at, in a religious convent is not equal in authority to the, the regular sisters. There's orders to things. This is what we believe as Catholics is that things have order. There is Christ. There is the church. There is us. Within us, we have little pockets of the domestic church in our families. The domestic church follows the same way where you have your, you know, minister, if you will, your priest, and you have the parishioners. Doesn't mean that you're a dictator. Doesn't mean that you get to decide what's for dinner every single night anything ridiculous or crazy like that. But when it comes down to this question of who gets the final say on certain things, whenever there's greater responsibility, there's greater authority. Whenever there's greater authority, there's greater responsibility. Those two things always go hand in hand. I've listened to different people give perspectives on this where they go through this head magic and mental gymnastics of talking about how Yes, the man is the leader, but it's servant leadership. This is kind of what I was talking about when I felt like I was listening to Father Mike. It's just servant leadership. It's not actual leader. I don't know a single leader of any organization, whether it be a business, whether it be a coach, whether it be a military leader, whether it be a boss, whether it be whatever, where when there's a final decision that needs to be made in those pivotal moments that they don't get to make the call. That is almost by definition what it means to be a leader. What, what, what are the definitions of being a leader if you were just describing it to somebody? It's the person with greater authority and greater responsibility. <laughs> That's what it basically means. So how do we sit here and say, well, I don't know. Do men get the final say? It's not about that. It's not about who gets the final say. Both should prayerfully discern it and come to an agreement. That's great if it can happen. How many, how many different Protestant denominations have been trying to pray and discern and come to a, a mutual de- agreement? We have like 40,000 different denominations. They're reading the same book. All claiming that they're praying, all claiming that they're discerning, and they're led by the Holy Spirit, and they all teach different things. Claiming that they're praying to the same God. How does that work? 
there's plenty of examples of people with even good intentions, discerning things and coming to different conclusions. In the ideal world, in the ideal marriage, yes, you wouldn't have that happen. But use this example. I've thought of this example of like a husband wants to get a gun for protection at home. The wife hates guns, doesn't want a gun in the house, thinks it's dangerous. Who gets to make that call? You could pray about it, be open to it. The wife could still be against it, be nervous about it. Who gets to make the decision? We can make all these. We always like to make it complicated. We always like to give an example where the husband's being a bad and evil man. And in that case, the woman doesn't have to submit. Okay, sure. Say they're both two equally decent human beings, maybe above average, church going, decent prayer lives, trying to raise their kids in the faith. Husband wants a gun, wife doesn't. Who gets to make the decision? I don't know how you read all of this stuff and listen to all these different things and say that they have to mutually decide together. I mean, if you just think that you can think that, you can think whatever you want. But I encourage everybody to pray with this. I've been truly wrestling with this for so long and have just said, God, please, like, if please, Lord, if I'm wrong about this, like, just show me. Let me talk to different people. Let me have these conversations with different people. And I share my perspective on They're like, yeah, it kind of makes sense based on the book. And not just the book, but, you know, those old guys like uh, St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine, who we sometimes quote and give some credit to for being kind of smart. I want to close with this example um, that I loved that uh, Renzo and Monica gave. They gave this example of a, a team captain and a head coach. And so I thought immediately of Bill Belichick and Tom Brady. Bill Belichick and Tom Brady are, you know, when they were working together, he was the head coach. He was obviously the leader of the team. Tom Brady was. The thing that I kind of pushed back on was this idea that when you have a team captain that's really respected by the team, that the coach doesn't have to give them direction. That the coach can just let them do what they Will because they're kind of they kind of become equals in a sense, and that's never the case. Not anything that I know. The only time that that's the case is if you have a really passive, and you know incompetent coach, or you have like a, a really really bloated prideful superstar, right? But you can experience this. You can even see how this goes wrong with if you've ever watched. This just came to mind, but the documentary of Johnny Manziel when he was at Texas A and M. Johnny talks about how he was in high school. He he worked. He played for this coach that was like a military leader that had extremely strict rules, was extremely hard on them, had a ton of, you know, structure in place. And, and, and um, Johnny Manziel was a superstar. He gets into college and they start treating him like a superstar. And they start saying, well, we don't want to tell Johnny what to do. Johnny's so good. He's so talented. We just let him do his thing. And he fell apart. When Bill Belichick and Tom Brady were playing football together, we're on the same team, I should say, not playing together. You know what I mean? When they were in it, if the the game came down to making a decision, whether to go for two, whether to go for it on fourth down, whether to punt, whether to kick a field goal, that was not Tom Brady's decision. It was Bill Belichick's decision. Why? Because Bill Belichick... He had greater authority because he had greater responsibility. The next day or that evening, even at the podium, the reporters aren't going to say, Tom, why'd you kick a field goal there? He's going to be like, that wasn't my decision. That's the coach's decision. And the coach will be fired based on how the team does or how the team doesn't do. 
the player is more evaluated on how they play and how they lead their team, but mainly on their own performance and how they lead their teammates, their peers and subordinates. The coach is graded on the outcomes. He's evaluated, fired, hired based on the outcomes he creates. I believe that men bear a greater responsibility for their family, which is why they have a greater authority. The two only make sense together. And I think where all of this kind of comes down to is we often hear, and you hear me, I'm like a squeaky wheel, a broken record talking about this. Where are all the good men? Where are all the men in the church? All these single, beautiful, wonderful Catholic ladies, and there's no men. I think this approach to telling men, you have greater responsibility, but you do not have greater authority, that's a shit deal, to be frank. It's a shit deal. To tell men all the time when you hear this breakdown of what marriage is, men, you have to love us like this, and you point to Christ crucified. And it's like, and if you're perfectly doing this, then we'll do something hard too and submit to you. Won't really get into the details or the specifics of what that means, even though the same women that will say that to you are the women that are voting on my Instagram story saying that uh, men and women should be the, – the Bible teaches men and women should be mutually submissive. They'll sit there and say, man, if you love us like this, we'll follow you, but men and women should be mutually submissive. They'll say, uh, man, if you love us like this, we'll follow you, but man is not the head of the wife. These contradictions of terms, who gets the final say? Men, if you love us like this, we'll follow you and submit to you, but – uh, it should always be agreed upon. Nobody gets the final say. This idea that we're going to lay on you greater responsibility and not give you greater authority is unfair. And it's not appealing to men. You know, Dr. Swafford, he reminded me of a Ben Shapiro speech about this or talk about this, where he was talking about husband being the head of the wife means you bear greater responsibility. When you bear greater responsibility as a leader, it means you need to lead from the front. You need to take ownership, all of those things, which I'm going to talk about in my next solo episode. Guys, we have to start to acknowledge what marriage is meant to be. We are the domestic church. We are not equals. We are different, equal in dignity, both charged with extremely difficult tasks, both charged to lay down our lives and, and, and serve and to love and to respect and to care for one another, but in different ways. And it does not look the exact same. And so I encourage you, if this was hard for you, to pray about this and to really think about what this means, to sit with the word of God, to pray with those scripture passages I gave to you, and to really think about it and see how this might impact and affect your own life. All right. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I hope that it was helpful for you. I hope that you'll share it with somebody else, that you can wrestle with this. You can talk about it. Tell them all the things and reasons why I'm wrong. Tell them while I'm right. And have these conversations, have these discussions, because I truly think that this does matter. And it's addressing this issue of why I'm like, why, where are all the good men in the church? Why is this so uh, you know, prevalent? Why is this such a problem? And I started to evaluate my own heart and start to pay attention to the things when I was at men's conferences and, and marriage retreats or whatever it might be, couples talks. And I'm like, man, that really rubs me the wrong way. Why is that? And I started to think, maybe it's not just me. And maybe other men aren't as... Um, you know, aware God hasn't brought it to the forefront of the light of why they're so frustrated and uncomfortable with these conversations. But I've prayed about it and asked him to show me these things. I think he's given me a platform to share those. And so that's what this is all about. This isn't just meant to flex. This isn't meant to create, again, a tyranny or anything like that. But the Catholic Church is a patriarchy. It just is by definition. And so if we can embrace that and acknowledge that and 
strive for holiness in the midst of it rather than fighting against it constantly. And I think like Protestants within the church, I think that's going to lead to a better church. It's going to lead to a happier church, more fulfilled church, more on fire church. And so love to hear your comments and feedback. Feel free to point out some things that I might have gotten wrong or that I, you know, may have misinterpreted or, or places where you think I misspoke. Would love to hear from you. Thanks so much for your time. God bless you. Now go be your best.